Good day, everyone. Welcome to the CSU Relentless Gardener podcast. I am Colorado State University Extension Area Specialist in Horticulture, Linda Langelo. And joining me today is Desiree Wood, a landscape architect trained as a master gardener and Japanese gardener. Now let us get to the heart of it, where we explore the horticultural topic of Japanese garden aesthetics and Western gardening. Hello, Desiree, how are you? Hello, Linda, I'm great. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here with you and your listeners. Well, this is this is a favorite topic of mine. So I, I'm excited to have you here and to hear what you have to say. What do you mean when you say Japanese garden aesthetics and if you will, a Zen mindset? Well, that's a wonderful question to start us off on, Linda. And it uh, sent me down a really nice historical little rabbit hole, if you will. Zen gardens are is a term that has become very popular. The average person can now have a sense of what that means or what that image is, but there's been a debate for quite a while of what the meaning of Zen really is in relation to gardens. So to give a brief introduction into that, Zen was a form of Buddhism that came into Japan in the 12th and 13th century. And it was very adaptable and well accepted to all levels of society. It focused on the acceptance of the transcendent equality of all of the components of an integrated world. It identified that there is the existence of Buddha nature in everything. And it talks about a search for an understanding of life based on this. So really it's about interconnectedness, equality, and that change is constant. So Zen influenced the culture in that there were cultural arts were a part of the Zen practice. And of course that translated into the cultural art of gardens. But when you're looking at the aesthetics of the Zen art, really it was an indicator of the presence of your spiritual path and of a concept we'll continue to talk about today called Ma, M-A. And really the aesthetics of Zen art break down into a contemplative approach, um, something that shows tranquility, uh, focusing on form, naturalness, and asymmetry, and really understanding and striving for an expression of the reality of process and action. So paying attention to things like time and materials. And so these aesthetics are so deeply ingrained in the Japanese culture um, that that's what we think of um, or what comes across sort of in that Zen mindset. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> nice description. <laughs> Thank you. 
So are, are there any more sort of idea of the elements of Japanese aesthetics you want to share with the audience? Absolutely. So that that gives the intro for the mindset. So the aesthetics really um the main one that I discussed earlier um, or introduced is moth, and that is the concept of space. But this is a very layered and sort of deep meaning of space. Um, so you can think about it in multiple ways, in a void, um, like the space within a room or within walls. You can think about it as a pause, The space that you would take as you're walking along a pathway before you might turn or take a step. Um, and space in regards to the process um, and in regards to time, seasonality. So the ma translates into all of these different aesthetics, but it all relates to how we as humans interact with space in a three-dimensional um, manner. Can you give a brief history of Japanese gardens? Well, I would be happy to. Um, I will try to keep it very concise because Japanese gardens are a 1,500-year-old um, tradition. Please keep it brief. How, how can you do that justice when you try to come up with the cliff notes for that? <laughs> but I went through and I made just some bullet points for our conversation today. So if you're looking at the 1500 year old tradition, you know, Japanese gardens, it's hard to come up with a description of what they are. Um, the approach throughout those hundreds of years has remained the same, but it changes in that it responds to the needs of the people and the needs of the time that everyone is in. And so throughout this whole time, it is a living formative art that focuses on natural sceneries, the creation of atmosphere, and the use of local materials. So the origin of that comes from how the Japanese culture relates to nature. And that stems from Shintoism. So Shintoism is an animistic belief system that holds a deep reverence for nature and sees kami or spirits in every part of nature. And so Shintoism would create shrines um, sort of out in nature. Maybe it was a cleared gravel area or denoting a sacred tree or a sacred rock or body of water. And so that is the, the basis of how this tradition began to evolve. So you fast forward a few hundred years and you begin to lay on top of that the introduction of Buddhism into the culture. And you have um, multiple forms of Buddhism. And so at first there were these gardens that were called pure land gardens. And so it was 
a representation of paradise on earth uh, relation to Buddhist lore. So you would have a very um, a fancy hall and architectural piece in the landscape, and that would be surrounded by water or a forest um, with a specific geometric outlay. Um, over time, that uh, evolved to strolling pond gardens. And so sort of the audience for those gardens changed from it being something that was more religious oriented to more um, sort of the rulers, so the daimyo, the warlords, they um, of course had a lot of money and there were limitations on how people could travel throughout the country. And so they would create these gardens that evoked distant, beautiful scenery that they could share with people um, and you would stroll through the garden, you would have a pond, you had a little boat and had wonderful parties in your garden. Um, but that only served a certain portion of the population. And so sort of the next evolution was uh, Zen gardens. So enclosed gardens for meditation. And these gardens also were created at a time of war and limited resources. And so they became very clever in how they represented different elements like water and how you abstract sceneries when you have limited resources. Um, and then just a sort of a few more, you know, we're trying to move through this 1500 years very quickly. Um, but the next sort of evolution of garden style would be tea gardens. And so tea gardens were related in a sense to the Zen study, and it was a, related to a cultural art, Chado, the study of tea. But it also now brought in the merchant class. And those gardens, um, because they were built deeper in the city where the merchants lived and they had limited land, the plots of land tended to be long and skinny. And so that developed a tea garden style where you're going on a pathway through this long skinny garden. Um, in addition to that, you have courtyard gardens um, and then sort of coming up in the last few hundred years, so much more recent, you have a style of garden called Zoki no Niwa, which really is like a forest garden, um, something that focuses on the ephemeral quality of nature and of life. And then in the last hundred years, you get to modern gardens. So sort of a combination of all of those things. How did how did we do for Oh that that's good. That's great. <laughs> my my favorite gardens are Zen and tea gardens. Those are wonderful choices. What do you enjoy about them? Uh the with the Zen, when you you enter the garden, you leave the world behind. And it's an introspection into yourself. And dry gardens are also, I've found, part of that. And to come out every day 
and to rake that gravel is in essence a quality of today you have a new beginning and tomorrow is gone. Absolutely. You should be giving this talk, Linda. <laughs> no, 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 no. When I when I was in Longwood Gardens as a student, I chose these topics as sort of an independent study. And it was just amazing. And there's a garden at uh, Dawes Arboretum that was given to one of our presidents. I'm not, I can't remember. I think maybe it was Nixon. And it's a fabulous garden. And there is just one uh, a pond there where they have stones where you can walk across and then there's a fall on one side. And it's amazing to stand on those stones. You feel like you're really a part of the environment around you. It's an, it's, it's an amazing feeling, you know, because we don't, we walk by nature, you know, we don't, we're too busy. We don't take it in. We don't enjoy its, its real essence. And that's why I like it. So. Well, I love that these gardens have made a impact on your life and that you can speak about them and what you're discussing, what you're highlighting are aspects that are very important in Japanese gardens, you know, engagement in the garden and being mindful and having that sort of restorative quality. And we talk about mindfulness so often now and really just go visit a Japanese garden. Yes. And, and you, you would capture that mindfulness that's very so, true. So, so what are the main differences between the spatial relationships in a Japanese garden versus other gardens? I know that's a tall order for a question, <laughs> but, <laughs> but help the audience maybe through some examples to, to understand that. Right. So one of the easiest ways um, to discuss that, the differences, is the asymmetry versus symmetry. So a Western garden, um, if you imagine sort of a very formal approach to a house or a courtyard off of a house, things are very symmetrical. Things are very geometric. Whereas a Japanese garden heavily plays off of asymmetry and sort of natural flowing forms. Um, another one of the differences would be the pathway and that relates to what you were talking about with engagement. So in Western gardens, we, we tend to be very, um, forward in our movements. You know, we, we have a straight line, it's going to be poured in concrete and we're getting from point A to point B as quickly as possible. Um, in Japanese gardens, it's about the path, the process, and really enjoying that, right? When you are out in nature and you're hiking, the trail is moving every which direction and up and down and different materials, and it forces you 
to constantly stop and take a moment and enjoy the scenery. And that aspect of path and how you move through Japanese gardens is very much taken from nature. Um, there's curving lines, there's angles, there's changes in grade. You're going through different visual transitions and it really slows you down. And then I would say the last one, um, kind of sort of touch on the big differences here, right? Would be coming back to Ma. And that is the um, concept of space and sort of void. And so Japanese gardens are very comfortable with having a lot of open space, uh, whether that is water or whether, whether that might be um, gravel as the abstraction of water. And it's very difficult when designing and building Japanese gardens to keep that space. We want to fill it, right? You just want to throw everything in there that you can, but um, keeping that space is such an important aspect of Japanese gardens and their layout. I, I had a thought there that, you know, filling that space is like cluttering your mind. You know, Absolutely. We always want to clutter it when if we clear it, we see things clearer. We we get to, you know, what where we need to go. And 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 your point about nature before that as another difference is that, you know, nature always surprises us. It, nothing is ever the same. Yes. Yeah. There's a concept in um, Japanese culture, you'll find it in, present in a lot of cultural arts called um, Ichigo Ichie, and it's one moment, one place. Every sort of moment of your day and wherever you are, that moment is never going to happen again. So to be very mindful of that and to appreciate it. That's just deep gratitude and respect. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about fluidity or water as an important element and describe, I know we have already in, in, in some instances, but describe more about how it's used in a Japanese garden. So water in its most simplest uh, sort of idea of how it relates to us as human beings, water is life, right? We cannot exist without water. You can go for a month without food, but only for a few days to a week um, without water. And so the Japanese gardens are about creating sort of a, a space for serenity and reflection and it's um a safe area of nature you know nature can, can just be um very scary sometimes whether it's you know hurricanes earthquakes fires um disease you name it you know there's there's a 
beauty and lightness to nature and there's also this like dark reality of it and so uh Japanese gardens are the safe nature and so but to sort of speak to the life force of nature you always want to have some type of water present and that can also be an abstraction so if you are able to have a large pond you know that that's a very easy way to have water be a part of your garden. But it could also be just a small water basin that you fill with water or that recirculates water. Or it could be something where it's an abstracted thought and representation of water. So at least you have the thought of water in your head. And that's something that uh, Japanese gardens will do if they can't bring the element in they will at least make you think about it right they're very engaging to the mind because the mind is something that we have to feed you know it's part of our our body and it's not just sort of this scenery and this experience for your eyes you know we have all these senses and this human body and so um always making sure that you have water in some way at least an idea of it I think that water tends to be very calming in a garden or in, in any way. It absolutely. And the, the ways in which water are used, like there's, you know, you're talking about a craft that has 1500 years to sort of pursue how they're going about this. So you, you know, talking about a, a pond is easy or a water basin, but if you are designing a garden that maybe has a stream, you, uh, or a waterfall, there are so many terms for, is it a sort of a thin waterfall or a broad waterfall, or what type of splashback do you want on the rocks? Do you want just a little bit of that white in the water, you know, for your stream, what type of noise is it going to make? And so there's this nuance to how is the water acting and how are you responding to it? And how does that make you feel? If the stream or waterfall is more energetic, you know, you're going to feel that versus if it's just very quiet. Um, or like a little bubbling creek, that's going to make you feel different emotion. Good points. Very good points. So we talked a, a little bit about trees in the garden. You mentioned a sacred tree. How else are they used in a Japanese garden? Trees are... Um, very important in Japanese gardens, but the way that they're used depends upon the style, right? We talked about all of those different styles of gardens. And really that can come down to, is it something that is more formal or is it something that is more informal? So a garden that is more formal, there's a higher likelihood of those trees being very highly pruned versus um, a more informal, natural-looking garden, the trees will look maybe a little more wild. So that 
really comes down to sort of the aesthetic intention, but also the maintenance. Um, there's a lot of thought to sort of when to prune and how to prune so that these trees still evoke a quality of nature. So it will look, you know, as if this tree is hundreds of years old, but maybe it's only a few decades old. And it's all about the care in pruning. Um, but how this would apply to say your listeners. Trees can be used for framing purposes. So do you have a, a tree near a patio or a view where some branches come over and sort of give a lovely frame of the rest of your garden? Um, maybe they are planted along a pathway. And so you, you feel that experience as you're walking next to it. It's um, a lot of different options. How, how are, are flowers used in a Japanese garden? I know that uh, where you can grow azaleas and things, they have a lot, those are flowering and they have a lot of other shrubs that can be used in different seasons, but in particular, herbaceous flowers, you don't often see a lot of flowers. Correct, yes, the flowers, um when they are present in a Japanese garden, it's really a seasonal statement, right? It's like an emotional uplift. Um, when you imagine being in nature and there's a plant that's blooming, you know, people might have seen recently that the poppies in California are blooming in the hillsides and it's just everywhere the eye can see you have this one type of flower. And so that's sort of the way that flowers are pulled into Japanese gardens. You might have cherry trees blooming in the spring. You might have irises blooming um, at the beginning of summer and azaleas, but it's going to be sort of this massive effect. Um, beyond that though, the herbaceous flowers, that's something that is starting to be more prevalent in Japanese gardens in recent time. But um, it sort of comes back to maintenance. Um, the woody plant material is easier to maintain long-term. And you know that you get many years out of a plant like that and that you have like this seasonal display Whereas the smaller herbaceous plants, those are harder to maintain and harder to get longevity out of them. And so um, it's not quite as popular, but it's starting to be included here and there. Good to know. Good to know. So what is the difference between a stroll garden and a dry garden? Um, well, it, you know, if you sort of look at the name of the garden, so a stroll garden is often um, like a hill and pond garden. It's the stroll sort of implies the viewing point, right? You're strolling through the garden. And so there's going to be a winding path 
where you're going to have multiple viewpoints. Dry garden is often enclosed um, and has a sort of fixed viewing point. So it might be a patio or a deck that's related to some type of architectural structure and um, has an abstraction of water, whereas the stroll garden has actual water. That's neat. So is there anything else you want to add to our discussion this morning? Well, I thought it might be um, helpful for your listeners to understand maybe a few takeaways of how sort of these lessons or what we talked about today could be applicable to them. Because Japanese gardens, it's a, a wonderful concept to discuss and they are wonderful gardens, but sometimes they can be um, intimidating for people to try to sort of recreate or how can they pull lessons from that. And so some of the sort of things I thought your listeners could take from today are to think of a beautiful place in nature that they really enjoy and maybe look at a picture and try to recreate something of that. You know, maybe if you're looking at a scene, maybe it's a, a tree that, um, you know, is a really lovely tree to sit under and maybe there's a nice rock underneath it where you can sit and enjoy the shade and look out at a beautiful view. You know, that's something that's very easy to recreate in any type of garden, regardless of what your the style of your garden is. Um, focusing on seasonality. So um, say you love rose bushes, you know, don't just plant one rose bush, plant 20 rose bushes, right? Like really go for it, like get enough of this plant to give you what's called that like emotional uplift, right? That really makes you stop and enjoy the moment. And then the last one would be coming back to Ma, to that space, both for your body and your mind. So don't be afraid to leave some open space in your garden. And don't be afraid to make that path through your garden stop and curve and change directions so that you can slow down and really be mindful of your time in nature. Well, thank you. This has been fun. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much, Linda. I really enjoyed this. And um, I hope your listeners got something from it as well. I hope so too. Well, thank you again for joining me. And a thank you to the audience for listening. Tune in next time when we get to the heart of a matter on another horticultural topic.